0: Uh, we are continuing with our bios, and today we are going to be talking about John Knox. Um, John Knox is an interesting character. Uh, Jude uh, Jude's middle name was uh, given to him because of John Knox. Every year, if you ever hear us yell "Jude Knox," he's both in trouble, and now you know where he got his name. All right. Um, so uh, today we're going to be talking about him. He is an interesting figure because we live at a time where uh, John Knox's would not be allowed. And so I am anxious to talk about him. So let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to talk about uh, your servants and particularly how your providence had worked in their lives and Lord help us learn to learn something uh, particular about ourselves as we think on uh, John Knox uh, as we think on the things he cared about may we uh, be challenged by this Lord we ask these things in your son's name amen okay so let me give you a little context um John Knox of course born in Scotland Uh, between 1505 and 1515 back then uh, they didn't keep really good records especially in Scotland things were a little uh, less formal Um, someone was born everyone was happy about it but no one wrote anything down Um, but he was born at a time, if you think about uh, being uh, born uh, into the 1500s, the, uh, the Reformation is already underway. He is what we would call the second generation reformers. Second generation, this means by the time he was an adult, the Reformation had been going on for about a decade. So um, he was not part of the original reformers, but he's the next generation that came up after the original reformers. If you think of it this way, uh, Luther was kind of, uh, Luther saw himself as someone that was kind of like apocalyptic uh, figure. Uh, he saw the end times coming. Uh, he believed that the Reformation was signaling in uh, the very last days and that when the Reformation was complete, there was, Jesus Christ would be coming into the uh, coming again, um, it had some uh, flavors of post-millennialism that we would be bring. Christ would be coming back as everyone was converting and uh, rediscovering the true gospel. And this is even why uh, you know you may have heard that you know Luther didn't like the Jews, which. Um, which is far from what uh, we think of today. Anti-Semitism is typically something about race. Uh, Luther would not have that kind of a concept back then, where you would hate someone because of that particular race, whatever that meant. Um, In Judaism, what his big concern was, according to Romans 11, he believed that part of this consummation of the Reformation, bringing in Christ would require the Jews to convert, and they weren't converting. And he believed that they were uh, keeping, uh, in a way they were stalling Christ's return by not converting. Does that make sense? Um, so, uh, so he saw himself as, as, this, um, as an end times prophet. If you were to ask him who in the Bible he would... Uh, see himself like. He would probably talk about the witnesses in, uh, in Revelation, in the book of Revelation. Knox, on the other hand, is, a com- is thinking in a di- completely different way about the Reformation. He didn't see the Reformation as that final thing that was going to bring Christ back and we're living at the end times. For Knox, he saw the Reformation as a fight against idolatry. So he would see himself more as an Elijah uh, figure that is trying to stop people from um, committing idolatry and worshipping something other than God or even worshipping God in the wrong way. So that was what his big fight was. Now that's important because as we look at Knox, this is going to be part of his constant attention is how are we worshiping and are we doing it the way that avoids idolatry? Now, he was, uh, he, like everybody uh, in those days, he, was, he started as a Catholic um, and was even ordained as a Catholic priest in 1536 and continued that way through about 1543. And if you think about it, uh, Luther died in 1546. So... You know, Luther dies three years after, you know, well, if I can put it this way, uh, Knox is a priest, and he kind of ends his priesthood about three years before Luther dies. So you can see that there's this, um, his conversion didn't happen until quite quite far along in his life, and quite far along in the Reformation. And of course, back then, people didn't write the date on their Bibles when they were converted. Uh, So we don't know exactly when uh, John Knox was converted. But we do know he was influenced. Part of this influence was through two men. One was uh, Patrick Hamilton. He was a Lutheran preacher, later on became martyred. But then there was another guy who really influenced him a lot. It was George Wishart. Uh, he was a Zwinglian preacher in Scotland. And uh, when people are referred as Zwinglian, um, we, it wasn't that they thought Zwingli was such a wonderful man. I kind of have an issue with him. Maybe we ought to do a bio on him, but it, it'd be a bitter bio. Uh, so anyway, um, it, it was that he was reformed. So you had these two, these two groups bringing on the Reformation. People that were considered what, what they would call reformed, that would be in the Zwinglian uh, way, uh, thinking about um, how one worships, particularly in communion. Uh, there was the Lutheran way, thinking about how one worships according to communion. They weren't differing on doctrines like, uh, you know, sola, sola scriptura and sola gratia and all that sort of thing. Their, their typical ideas about theology were the same. It came down to how do we worship, particularly when it came to communion. Uh, communion uh, one uh, historian said, even though when we think of the Reformation, we're usually thinking of grace alone and all that sort of stuff, but he said that more ink was spilt over communion than any other topic in the Reformation. So it's something to think about. Um, but it's important that these two men influenced Knox, but especially George Wishart. And so George Wishart was a preacher that was preaching um, <laughs> in a, you know, Protestant ideas, which of course the authorities didn't like. And so he was a wanted man. I want you to think about what's going on at this time. The government is telling you you can't speak the truth of scripture, that you had to conform to something that you believe very strongly, is against scripture. And so Wishart, what does he do? Does he hide? A little bit, but not really a lot. He's still preaching. What he does is he he hires a bodyguard. So he has the, you know, the government's after him, and instead of like, you know, running away somewhere, he keeps preaching, but he just has bodyguards. And so one of the bodyguards he hired was a guy named John Knox. So John Knox becomes a bodyguard. And as a bodyguard, he doesn't just stand there, you know, speaking in his sleeve like they do nowadays. But he had this sword. It was called a claymore sword. The claymore sword was this double-edged sword that was usually from the ground probably up to here. It's one of those really big swords. And it's designed for slashing. Okay, so you don't fence with this, it's not like a gentleman's death where you, know, you get stabbed and a little prick of blood comes out and you're like, I got you, uh, this is a claymore so you slash, this is to uh, gut people I guess is what if I could put it uh, more rawly, um, but that it's, a, it's a gruesome weapon, but it's to remind you of what's coming, right? It's one thing to have this little tiny sword that might get you. Uh, it's another thing to realize your guts might be on the floor if you mess with this guy, right? So this is what we talk about in Sunday school. Okay, so um, I want you to get this feeling of what's going on. You have this kind of, I mean, it's, the sword is so big and so tough. I mean, obviously, when you're walking around with this guy, you know, when you're walking him you know, from his horse into, into the church to to preach, you're carrying this on your shoulder. I mean, you, you look pretty pretty cool. <laughs> you know, I mean, so John Knox isn't, uh, this is kind of representative of what kind of a man he's, you're going to see him be. Um, so he is willing to do what it takes to defend a man who's preaching the gospel and is willing to do it uh, in a way that is quite intimidating. Um, so, in March, uh, March first, fifteen forty-six, Wishart gets arrested. Now, so that uh, this usually means that this was done at night. Uh, your bodyguards aren't going to be around at that point. Usually, bodyguards were uh, escorting you from your house in the morning to the horse, from the horse to the to the church, and on particular days. So this was something that was probably done at night uh, when no one knew what was happening. Um, He was probably taken away and arrested during the night and then um, taken to Cardinal Beaton. Now Cardinal Beaton was known for being uh, very brutal against Protestants. So Cardinal Beaton took uh, Wishart, put him uh, on a stake, and burnt him alive uh, at that stake. So... Uh this isn't England, you have to understand. This is Scotland. So people aren't, you know, people don't watch this man get burnt alive and go, oh, that's so disappointing. I'm so sad, let's go home and cry. This is Scotland. So a bunch of noblemen get together and say, We need to do something about this. And so a bunch of Scottish noblemen. In uh, March, uh, March 29th, so it's not too many days after uh, Wishart was burnt, uh, they get together and they storm the castle that Beaton lived in. So you have to understand, through the Catholic Church, in those days, the Catholic Church had more money than a lot of times the kings and queens of the nations. Um, and so people even treated... Uh, the Catholic Church, oftentimes as a bank or as a, as a way of income, uh, they would get loans. I mean, this was, talk about uh, tipping over the uh, tables in the, you know, Jesus would not be pleased with this. And this, is how, and this is how the Protestant looked at the Catholic Church. There were a bunch of sellouts that were just engorged with money and greed, which wasn't too far from the truth. And so Cardinal Beaton didn't live in a humble home. He lived in a castle. And so the noblemen stormed the castle, uh, had big claymores in their hands, and literally hacked uh, Cardinal Beaton into pieces. Uh, that's not a metaphor. <laughs> they hacked him into little itsy bitsy pieces, and uh, and then took over the castle. Now, I know there's probably some of you that are thinking, yes, that's the way to do things. And, you know, this is what makes history uh, difficult, right? I mean, is that, the, is that the way we respond to things like this? Um, because you would think, well, then someone stood up and said, no, this isn't the way to do it. But instead, everyone's like, hey, let's send our kids and family over to this castle. Looks like it's, it's a pretty safe place to be. And... Uh, And so then John Knox, who was uh, tutoring um, a rich family's kids, uh, the rich family said, hey, take our kids over to that castle. There's some good stuff happening over there. So John Knox takes the kids over to the castle, and there's lots of families starting to go to live in this castle. They've kind of taken it over. It becomes this Protestant uh, kind of hideout type place, and they ask John Knox to be the pastor at the castle. And of course, John Knox protests for a second, as all reformers did when they were asked to be a pastor, and then says, okay, Um, because he says, uh, I don't know if you know this, this is kind of something in the Reformation, I think I believe John Calvin, when he said he didn't want to be a pastor at Geneva, there was some real reasons why he wouldn't want to do that, but... Lots of people, when they were asked to be a pastor, would say, Oh, no, no, no. And then they have to be talked into it to show their humility. But they probably wanted to. Like like John Knox. Um, I just have to ask. I'm like, sorry. Right, these guys stormed the Castle, was Oh, no. Knox was not with them. Nope. Even though once they got there, he became the whole king of the castle. Well, the preacher of the castle. The yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's a good question. So the question was, did, was Knox part of the nobleman that hacked this guy to death? Uh, no. Um, Knox was still um, probably on the run because once, you know, once the guy you're a bodyguard for gets burnt at the stake, they're looking for everyone that was around him uh, to make an example. So he was, he was on the run uh, at that point. But then returned and then went to that castle, though, with those kids and became the pastor there. Uh, then the, uh, the Catholic Church knew that they had to do something because this was starting to make the Protestants look like they're becoming organized. And that maybe there's, you know, if they can get that castle, maybe they can get other castles, and this is problematic. So they hired the French Navy to come in. Uh, about a year later, June 1547, and, uh, and they, they stormed the castle. This castle has been stormed quite a bit. And so they stormed the castle, and uh, they didn't massacre everybody, which was interesting, but they did take them all into captivity. There, you had a lot of families there, but all the noblemen and adult men were taken into captivity. And Knox was then assigned uh, into a galley. Where, uh, where you were put on a boat and you were the rower uh, in one of these big, massive boats. Maybe you saw, uh, maybe when you are a little kid, you saw Ben-Hur. Anyone see that movie, Ben-Hur, with Charlton Heston? And you see all these guys doing the rowing in the galley, and there's a guy with a drum to make sure they're rowing. In the... It wasn't usually quite that clean, and it wasn't usually a bunch of really muscular men rowing. It was a bunch of weak men uh, because they starved them to death. Uh, They usually... The galley was a place you were put to die. It was not a place that, oh, we need good workers, let's feed them and take care of them. It was, this is a death sentence, but we hate you so much, we want the death to last a few months before you die. And so, you know, you're talking about people that weren't, you know... If they were fed anything, they were fed while they were sitting there in their own waist. There was no like, oh, can I go to the bathroom? You understand what I'm saying? So people are dying of horrible diseases. The guy next to you might be dying of a horrible disease that you might get because you're, standing, you're just sitting right next to him. You're probably sitting in his waist. I mean, it is a nasty, nasty place. There's, there's stories of people... Uh, that were sentenced to the galleys, and then they admitted to worse crimes so that they could be killed instantly uh, instead of being sent to the galleys. So this is the kind of place this is. You don't want to be there. Um, it is a slow, terrible death. You're treated terribly all the time. Lots of beatings. Um, and, and when someone finally dies, you're just thrown off the side. Um, if, you stop, uh, if you stop producing, you're beaten, and if you still can't produce you know, and pull, pull your weight, you're thrown off the side. So this is a terrible situation, and John Knox is thrown right into the galleys to die. And oftentimes what they would do is they would uh, try to torture. A lot of the people in the galleys were Protestants, so they would try and torture them by bringing images of Mary... Uh, like a little statue of Mary, and uh, tell each Protestant guy there to kiss the, kiss the image. And just to show you what kind of a guy John Knox is, he's in a place where he is sent to die and to be beaten and tortured, and they hand him this image of Mary, and he grabs it, and he looks around, and he throws it overboard and says, if she's so, oh, let, me, let me quote, if she's so wonderful, she can swim for herself. And then, this was a quote, and then he says after that, and after that, no Scotsman was urged to, to that idolatry. <laughs> so you think about this. Here are these galley masters who do nothing but beat people and make them work and torture them, and they try to mess with John Knox, and he throws it over and says something sarcastic to them and just looks at them. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, this is, this is something that happens to bullies. You know, bullies are, you know, really enjoy their life until someone finally stands up to them, right? But they could have just beaten him, They could have done all kinds of stuff. Think of the, what kind of a man John Knox is. You understand where even in this weakest position, he still stands up to these people. And instead of them just beating him to death, they just like, all right, well, everyone go back to work. He was not beaten. They didn't do anything. They just sent him back to work. Everyone started rowing again. Uh, so most, uh, most men that were sent to the galleys died within a few months, usually, uh, usually two to three months because of an infection they would get that wouldn't be treated or some kind of sickness that got passed around uh, down in the galleys and you would die. John Knox uh, was in the galleys for nineteen months I mean that's unheard of uh, its over a year of, of existence in a place where most people are dying within a few months and um, so uh, strangely February 5th 1549 this is just a few years after the death of Luther he started to get sick and things weren't looking good for John Knox, and all of a sudden, mysteriously, and to this day no one knows why, he was released. Now, there was a lot of things going on politically at that time. Uh, you had uh, Henry VIII had died, and Edward, uh, Edward is coming into power. Um, and so... You have this, even in uh, Henry VIII's reign, you had people still uh, leaning towards Protestantism. There's a lot of backroom deals going on. Um, if someone knows, hey, that John Knox guy who stormed that, you know, was one of the guys that was the preacher of that place where people stormed that castle, that was pretty cool. Is he still alive? And, and so you get these prisoner exchanges and stuff like that. Uh, everything's political in these days. Um, and so it's possible that that's what happened. There was a prisoner exchange. Someone remembered John Knox and pulled him out of the galleys. Kind of like a Joseph story, except for no one's interpreting dreams. Okay, so uh, so Henry VIII dies. Edward, uh, at age 11, becomes king. And uh, who else in uh, Bible in the Old Testament became king as a boy? I know that's a tough one. What was that uh, Josiah? I was thinking of Josiah. Is anyone else thinking of Josiah? <laughs> okay, you were. Th- okay, thank you. Just want to make sure you get credit. Okay, so Josiah, uh, and I, and I want you to think of Old Testament characters when you're thinking of John Knox, because John Knox really believed, as much as Luther believed, he was living in the Book of Revelation. John Knox believed he was living in the Old Testament. Um, he had that strong uh, belief of, that, of how the Old Testament system worked and saw uh, the Reformation as a, a rejection of the idolatry and returning to that state of uh, living in godly times where even your rulers were godly rulers, just like in the Old Testament. Um, so, and you have to understand, this isn't, this isn't Americanism like we're looking for a Christian president. That's not what this is about. Uh, you have to understand with John Knox, he's living at a time where the government and religion are locked together. And there is, you know, separating those two would be anathema. Who would think of, to do such a thing? They need each other. You expect the government to support the church because that is how it works, and so what you're looking for is a government that loves God, so that the church can be free to worship without idolatry. That's what John Knox is looking for. Um. So during you know, as if you guys remember the the um, the Sunday school we had about Bloody Mary. remember that and so uh, you have to remember that 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 uh, keep that in your head if you remember anything that I talked about uh, with Bloody Mary because uh, if you remember Edward's reign was quite short because he was a sickly kid but during that short time Knox had a big influence because you have to understand as a young kid who are young kids interested in are they interested in the tempered wise men that that are moderates, or are they interested in the radical guy that did this amazing thing who put a giant sword on his shoulder and walked around and slashed people that would mess with a preacher, right, that's what he was interested in, the guy that's been in the galleys and lived for 19 months, get that guy over here, I want to hear what he has to say, so John Knox was able to speak to uh, king, king Edward when he was king, he was king. And John Knox took advantage of that situation because at that time, uh, this guy named Cramner, who was good friends with Henry VIII, Cramner was trying hard to get Protestantism into the kingdom, uh, with Henry VIII still believing he was Catholic, kind of. Um, And so he came up with this thing called the Book of Common Prayer. It's this liturgy, a way of worshiping. Well, in the Book of Common Prayer, it prescribed for you to kneel to the elements. Now, the elements in the Book of Common Prayer is not saying that the elements actually had the presence of Jesus Christ there, and that's why you kneel, because Jesus' presence is in the bread and in the wine. But the very fact that you were prescribed to kneel was um, offensive to Knox because that prescription was telling you to do something that assumed something evil about the, the elements, which is that Jesus' presence was actually in there. So he said, that needs to be changed. And he got, he got Edward so uh, upset about it that Edward told Cramner it needs to change. Well, you have to understand, Cramner had just come out with the second edition of this Book of Common Prayer, and it's sitting there about to be sold you know, the next week, and all these copies have already been printed. So this isn't you know, like today where you just you know, fix something and then you're like, okay, you know, reprint. Uh, that's a lot of money. So what he did was he put this little page at the very front, what, what was called the, um, the oh, what was it called, black, uh, hold on. Not that anyone cares, but I'm just going to say the black rubric. Um, so the black rubric was this little piece of paper that said, you know, when, when we say you, you, you kneel before the elements, we're not saying that this is the, this is the actual presence of Jesus. So he had to put that in there, and that's because of John Knox. took advantage of that one time he was going to be able to speak to the king. But this tells you how important keeping from idolatry is to Knox. One of them, um, you know, Knox wrote about that moment where he took that statue and threw it in the water uh, during the galleys, because that's in his head all the time. How do I? How are we worshiping? Are we worshiping in a way that is producing idolatry? And so um, there is this. Uh, what was that? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, um, he began to, uh, he debated a guy named um, Tunstall about the Mass. And I want you to see what he does. So the Mass is the big enemy in the Reformation, because the Mass is saying, this is how you worship God. And for the Reformation, how you worship is very important. And so he had this... uh, this way of arguing with Tunstall where he said any form of worship not prescribed in scripture is idolatry. So scripture has to be that which prescribes how we worship. So whatever is not prescribed in worship is idolatry. The mass is not prescribed in scripture, therefore the mass is idolatry. Makes sense? Um, And then he says, and any form of worship which which has a wicked opinion attached, is an act of idolatry. And by wicked opinion, uh, he means like false theology attached to it. Uh, a wicked opinion is attached to the mass. There's false theology in the mass. Therefore, the mass is idolatry. And this becomes the very focal point of Knox's work that has really affected the Reformation and then affects how we worship today. So the Lutherans... Uh, said, "Whatever is not forbidden in Scripture is permitted in worship." But the reformer, or the, the, the reformed, those that put themselves behind Knox, was saying, "If it is not prescribed in Scripture, right? If it's not prescribed in Scripture, then we should not do it." So this is where you get regulative and normative principles of worship, OK? So in a Lutheran church, you go to a Lutheran church, even today, and you'll see all kinds of pictures. It almost, with some Lutheran churches, not all, of course, but with some Lutheran churches, you might see that it almost looks like a Catholic cathedral. There's so much ornateness in it and all that sort of stuff. Um, In megachurches today, you will see a lot of things added to worship that is not in Scripture. Scripture. Uh, in fact, there's even very, very conservative churches today that will have drama teams come and put on a drama during a church service. Not prescribed, right? So that would be a normative way of what they call normative worship, where if it's, if it's not forbidden, nowhere in Scripture to say you can't have a drama team come and speak, therefore you should have it, or you can have it. It's permissible, right? Right? John Knox was saying, if it's not prescribed, it's idolatry. So, reading of Scripture is prescribed. Singing in worship is, is prescribed. Uh, preaching the Word, giving the elements, baptism, those are all prescriptions of Scripture, and that's why John Knox says, that's why, that is, that's why we do that, because what's prescribed is what we should do. If it's not prescribed, we shouldn't do it. And that has lasted even today. It's lasted even into the plan of liturgy you have right in front of you on your, uh, on your bulletins. Because we hold to that Reformed view. Okay. Oh boy. What was that? Yeah, regulative, yes. Yeah. So the, if you're doing what is prescribed in Scripture... Limiting yourself to what's prescribed, that's the regulative principle. If you say, well, we can do whatever is not forbidden, then that's normative. Makes sense? It's a good thing to remember, since it still affects us today. That's part of John Knox's work. That It's not that no one was thinking about that, but John Knox made it very clear, and uh, especially with his influence. Okay, so Edward dies. You know about Bloody Mary. We talked about her already, her march on London, um, and this sends Knox away, right, uh, from England. He goes and visits uh, Calvin in Geneva. He asks Calvin's questions about politics, all the way down to should we obey idolatrous rulers and things like that, and he kind of becomes this uh, fan, if I can put it this way, of Calvin. He really likes Calvin. Now, this what's interesting about this whole thing is that what you have is this man, who's who's an aggressive man, who understands you know what it means to suffer, and is not a uh, he's not a politician. Put it that way. Whatever the truth is, the truth needs to be known, even if it kills me. And he is going to fight. He's just one of those kind of guys, which are very valuable men particularly when they have a mentor men like this are very valuable when they have a mentor to help them to channel their uh, their energy and their zeal be able to be wise in their energy and zeal Um, and then you have a well-honed machine right I mean it's one thing to have power and uh, to see something like explode, and you see the power of an explosion. It's another thing to be able to harness that power into like a Mustang engine. Right? And be able to harness it and make something happen with, that, with power. Right? And I think that uh, John Knox was one of those big explosions that, that if he had a mentor, especially as he kind of gravitated toward Calvin would have made him maybe even more of a well-oiled machine uh, than he was. He was a little more of a raw kind of guy. And I'm not saying that he needed to be tamed. I think he just needed to be uh, focused. I can put it that way. And sometimes mentors are helpful in taking zeal that tends to just be everywhere because they're so excited and say, no, put all of that this way, don't worry about this, and worry about this right because what you know when young men especially young men what's the first thing they get super excited about when they get excited about the lord they're like so how's the end times gonna be and they're like yeah let's fight about that And you're like no no no, no don't worry about that jesus is coming back everyone's happy about that i want you to focus on this focus on loving your neighbor and reaching your neighbor in good ways and being men What does it mean to be a man? Put your focus. And and so now all that energy starts coming to to be a well-oiled machine and not just a big explosion, right? When it comes to John Knox, I think he was just this massive explosion, but he needed someone to guide and direct. Not tame, but direct the energy. Does that make sense? I put it that way because I think some people think, well, John Knox needed to be tamed, and I, I worry about that idea because I think a feministic uh, way of thinking about things is the idea of taming men. And I don't think men need to be tamed. I think they need focus. Um, my son and I were talking about this on the way here. There was a time where you had to talk to young men about slowing down when they drove and stop being so aggressive when they drove. And nowadays, I see young men driving, and they're just a bunch of old grannies. I mean, they're just like, so careful, because mama told me how to be careful. And it's fine, and it's wonderful that you're safe. I'm just saying there was a time, and I'm not saying, you know, a a real man is dangerous on the road. I'm just saying there was a a time where young men were aggressive, and you're like, hey, easy, uh, you know, focus, you know. But now, uh, I, I see a lot of young men who have been tamed. Can I put it that way? Yeah, maybe that too, yeah. <laughs> that's that's possible. Yeah, they could have been pulled over too much. I know I was. Especially, I, I spent a couple of years in Germany where there wasn't a lot of laws about that. And then I came back to America and I realized there are laws uh, still in place. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true too. So I I say all that to say, I think some of where... John Knox, where people complain about John Knox, I think isn't because he needed to be tamed. I think it's because he needed to be focused. And he had a desire to be mentored. And I saw, uh, you know, you see that happening when he's approaching Calvin and trying to uh, regard Calvin. Um, I think where everything started falling apart is when he wrote... Uh, the first blast of trumpets against the monstrous regiments of women. And, um, <laughs> and so he wrote, this, he wrote this big diatribe. It was going to be a three-part series, but it only ended up being one part. First, you have to understand that uh, when, when he's talking about the blast of trumpets against the monstrous, monstrous doesn't mean that women are monstrous. It just means that they were, it was strange, right? There was a strange way about these women. Uh, and also, uh, regiments did not mean like women were attacking him uh, in giant massive armies. It meant that they were uh, ruling. So how the strange rule of women, that, it, that he believed it was, it was strange that women were ruling and that there needs to be something done about it. Now, there's a lot of things that go into that. First, you have to understand all the rulers that were trying to kill him were women. There were, I mean, Edward was the only guy that he really was able to converse with that didn't want to kill him, and he was male. So there's something about that. There is something about uh, the idea of women ruling and the idea of... Uh, What that is supposed to be about biblically—that was lost during that time. Where he did have a point, and on some of that. Other parts of the writing, he says, there's intellectual failings in women, and that didn't go over well, even then. (laughs) So, and so, uh, and what's even worse is that it came out right when Elizabeth the first was. Uh, came into power, the one person that was going to make everyone okay. And she really did. It was good. She, uh, she was good with Protestantism. Um, and so it just was bad timing. It was unfocused. And it just set the wrong tone. It's probably not what he needed to worry about at that time. Calvin, and this is, you know, this is where history is history, Okay. So Calvin you know, probably had a lot on his plate, uh, but instead of saying, hey, come over here and uh, let me show you the way you're kind of losing your focus here, uh, Calvin just uh, sent a letter to the publishers saying, do not publish anything else by <laughs> John Knox. And so John Knox uh, you know, was banned from England and he went back to Scotland. And so I, you know, I'm not blaming, you know, Calvin. Calvin's probably thinking this guy's a lot of trouble, and I got a lot of things on my plate. I got a congregation to worry about. This guy needs to go do his own thing. Yes. As far as I understand, it, Calvin was not opposed to the principle that, that Knox was writing about. Mm-hmm. He opposed it because of the time. Yeah. Yeah. so Calvin was upset with him, but in some letters he expressed that he had no problem with being Yeah. <laughs> the timing, yeah. And that's right. And it's the it's the and it's what and that's the thing with young men. They they are excited, they have this thing this principle, and maybe the principle is even, you know, in some ways the principle might have been uh right biblically and these different things. Uh but having a mentor saying, you know, now's not the time for that. Why don't you focus on this? Was that written in, in, was that because of I think it was written because of a lot of things. I mean, this is a guy that really had the strong Old Testament view of things, which isn't a bad view. It's just, um, you know, when, your whole, when the Reformation is being affected by a lot of women rulers. And a lot of that was negative. You know, he wanted to demonstrate why this might have been happening this way. But again, terrible timing. But, um, oh boy. So let me finish out this. So he goes to Scotland and, um, you know, Mary of Guise uh, is in charge. This is before Mary of, uh, Mary of Scots. And... Uh, you know he, he does a lot of good things. He writes a lot of good things. He writes a confession that uh, some people say is second only to the Westminster Confession. Um, he talks about uh, he writes a treatise on predestination. Some people think because he loved Calvin so much, um, Knox was not super interested in predestination. In fact, in his confession, he talks about Christ being the predestined one. Um, to, uh, you know, in in view of our salvation, but never really mentions our predestination. It just wasn't very, he just kind of thought that was, that's already in the background. But then he writes this treatise on it, which kind of shows that he wanted Calvin to approve of him. I think he really cared. I think there was something that John Knox saw in Calvin that he really thought, this could be a father to me, this man um and so there was this and then you know because it's history warts and all um you know his wife dies and that's very sad uh but then he marries a 17 year old girl that was super controversial even back then he might have been close to 50 maybe over 50 we're not sure what his age was but she seemed to really like him uh and it wasn't like one of those things where she felt trapped in some weird relationship. Uh, they seemed to get along well. Um, it was just controversial because of the age uh, difference. He, uh, on November, 15, or November uh, 24th, 1572, uh, while his wife read to him scripture, uh, he passed away. Uh, he left behind five children. Um, if you go to Edinburgh, Scotland, and you go to St. Uh, Giles uh, Cathedral, if you go to the back of the parking lot behind the cathedral, you'll see all these parking spaces. One of the parking spaces in the way back has this uh, square in it made of marble. You go to it, and you stand over it, and you look down. Nothing's written on it, but that's where John Knox is. Um, in those days, they, uh, a lot of the reformers asked to be buried in an unmarked grave uh, because they did not want to be heroes or thought of as uh, important. And so they, uh, a lot of them asked to be buried in unmarked graves, and so they did that. But everyone knows where it is because we still need heroes. <laughs> so anyway, uh, one thing I think we could learn from John Knox is um, something at least occurred to me during, during the study of him, is that we have when we have young men who are zealous and excited for the Lord, and they are these giant explosions for Christ, we older men need to be fathers to them. Uh, focus their explosion towards good things for the Lord, so they know how to focus young men don't always know how to focus they want to do everything all at once and at a hundred miles an hour Um, and we need to not tame them we don't want them to stop being zealous I think sometimes we end up doing that say don't be so excited and we don't want that we want them we want all of that explosion we just want as men to lead these young men in one direction and that goes very much for young ladies too. I think half the problem with feminism is because you have young ladies who are, you know, these giant explosions for the Lord and no one is telling them how to focus it and so they get on to everything and they want to be independent and they want, and all these different focus comes in and they don't know how to focus it on uh, how to be a great woman for Jesus Christ. They know how to be a great woman in the world, they haven't learned how to be a great woman for Jesus Christ. And I think the same thing with young men, and I think John Knox is a good example of that. Uh, but the Lord used him greatly, and I liked him so much I named one of my kids after him, so that's pretty cool. All right, well let's have a word of prayer, and uh, we'll get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your graciousness to your people. That even with all our flaws, that you use us for your glory, and may you use our worship today for your glory. Lord, be with uh, Andrew as he brings your word to us, that we might think on what is brought today as that which is directly from you, that we might listen with humble hearts, eager to learn, and eager to be more like Christ today. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name, amen.